When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Speakernomics, the podcast about becoming a better speaker and building a better business. I'm your host, Tom Singer, and I have had so much fun the last two years hosting this show for the National Speakers Association. And every single week, we try to bring to everybody who listens ideas, thoughts, and actionable content that will make you more successful in this crazy world of being a professional speaker. And today, we are joined by Scott Halford. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Well, today, we're going to talk about being an experienced expert and what all of that means. And you've got a couple of tips for everybody. So, so what are your two tips for being that experienced expert? The first one would be no matter whether you do a 20-minute keynote or a full-day workshop, use scientific data that you cite and make sure that it is accurate. The second one would be that to understand the difference between an amateur and a pro. And the difference between those two is a model, one that really works Awesome. Well, we're going to have some fun going into this. But for those of you who don't know Scott Halford, he helps people in corporations become brain based. And what he does is he works with executives so that they can better understand how the brain works. Therefore, they can be more effective and they can help their teams be more effective. What he specializes in is the achievement side of neuroscience. Now, when we say this, that's like being a brain scientist, right, Scott? That's kind of like that. <laughs> so what is, what is your background? How did you become an expert in the brain? Well, it was an accident. That's for sure. It, uh, it, I've always used science in everything that I've done. And I began to work with doctors and scientists and they wanted to know the scientific side of emotional intelligence. So we started looking at the brain and we looked at fear and all kinds of things that happened. So then I went back to school, decided that I better learn a little bit about neuroscience and came out and... Now I can, I can talk it with the best of them. But you know what the funny thing is? This is the most important thing I've learned in this realm. And that is learning all the fancy words and all the, the impressive things, you know, being able to have architecture in the brain roll off your tongue. That's not what people are, are there for. They don't need to be impressed with how smart you are. They need to know that you, you, you've got your licks in, but they don't need to know that. So using that kind of language is show off. And I had plenty of times when I did my show off, but I will tell you right now, it's not the the thing that you want to do in your career. Get the knowledge, but you don't have to show off that you have it. Nice. That's important thing. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think this kind of ties right into what the, what the theme is for today. And that is sort of being that experienced expert. So you, you want to have the experience, you want to have the knowledge, but you don't have to always sort of lead, lead with that uh, braggadocious word dropping, right? Right. Well, and then, you know, the, we, we had the, in the last probably 15, 20 years, the whole thing of the thought leader, right? And then the argument whether you could call yourself a thought leader, it's other people who would call you a thought leader. And I never got, got involved in that whole rigmarole just because uh, it just became trendy. And what doesn't become trendy is your expertise to your clients and that, that you 
are actually providing them with something that is real and salient and has teeth in it. I call it neuro teeth. And you could be a keynote speaker and go do, you know, go do a, a motivational speech, if you will. But if you come at it with the kind of expertise we're going to be talking about, then they know you're for real. You become this kind of catalyst for actually doing what you're talking about because you are real and you're, you're talking about it from a, an experienced space, not just because you wanted to. Nice. Well, I want to get into the tips that you had, and then I want to come back a little bit to experience. But we'll start off with your first tip was, you know, have some research data and, and cite that data. So let's start off with the first question. Do you have to do your own research or can you find research that's been done, you know, in an academic setting and, and use that research? I, if you're not experienced with research, I would say use the academic setting. There's plenty. Use Google Scholar and go there and look for scholarly articles. There are different things that will help you to kind of dummy down the science because it's really sometimes it's like you're searching for the verb for 17 minutes at just one paragraph and you never find it. But the scientific data out there, you don't have to conduct it. However, I would I would consider doing it later on and they don't have to be uh, too crazy. But the scientific data we're talking about is, you know, when a client of mine came to me and just said, I have to prove to our corporate attorneys that what I'm going to suggest to them as a meeting planner for this company is nothing to do with the, the, what we, you know, the widget that we pass on in this company, nothing to do with that. And so I said, well, what's your goal? She said, I want to see what changes in these people because they've all reached such high, high levels. Um, if they have to be assigned to these different experiences. And she said, is there any neuroscience around it? I'm like, there is tons. And when I began to cite all of the neuroscience around the things that she was doing, so she could go to the president of this company who was not having it and they bought off on it. It's because she used the data and I gave her the data because she knew to come to me. And now I'm going and I've got two days where I'm going to be speaking there. So it, it you just become this resource and it you become verifiable. People are people are looking for you and they're looking at your data in their iPhones and on their iPads. It's very hard to be fact checked, but it's a good thing. <laughs> so, you know, this idea of, of coming out with actual scientific research data versus just observation, observational storytelling. Let's go a little bit deeper on that. Why is it important to come with the facts and the figures? Well, if you work in the corporate market like I do and you work with the kinds of people I work with, which are executives, there is a huge swath of them who are so analytical that they will shut down if you do an icebreaker to touch any kind of touchy thing, something to start with like that. They just shut down. Uh, they don't necessarily want to talk to the person next to them. And they've heard this all before. And I don't really know why I'm here is that attitude. And it's a lot of them. And they're your best allies if you can turn them. And you know how you turn them? Data and really high. You want to make it that... That data needs to come out very high so they can finally just settle down and listen to you. So that's that's one of the reasons why it's incredibly important. The other part is it says that if you're looking for that data and you are on a constant search for it, you are constantly upgrading your knowledge in the, that arena. It's important to remain relevant in what you're doing. So you bring up an interesting point, and that is part of your audience is going to be these, you know, people who are who are, are, are data based people. And part of your audience might be the touchy feely. Hey, I want to be here to network and connect and see all the good people. And then you're going to have sort of that that spectrum of everybody who's who's sort of in between. So how from a brain researcher standpoint, can we as speakers be able to touch 
everyone in the audience. Is there some some like way you balance when you speak? Because you're going to have even as an analytical guy, you're going to have some people who are there for that, you know, touchy feely motivational side. So how do we balance that? For sure. So if you look at at the world divided into into their thinking, how they think about things. You have a group of people who they, they want to tell stories. That's how, what they do. They're very social. That's a, that's how they think. There's another group that wants to touch it and give you their opinion and invent it and reinvent it. There's another group that is that analytical data, prove it, show me the bottom line. Don't tell me all the, all the, the, the data in between. I just need the nuggets of the data. And then the, the, the last group is, uh, they like it structured. They want the learning to happen in a very structured way with a beginning to end curriculum designed well. So how do you hit them? You've got pieces and bits and pieces for each and every one of them. If you overdo any one of them, you're going to be in trouble. However, if you use that scientific data and you bought them and you can see kind of when you do, when you're looking at it, when it happens in the audience, what happens is that then you can overdo the storytelling, which is the analytical people aren't necessarily the kind of people to like that but then they fall into your hands. Just give them the data. (laughs) All right. So I love this. I want to go back to the idea of two things, finding the data that's out there. And then I want to talk about conducting your own research. So the first one is finding the data that's out there. And you talked about, you know, Google scholar and and some other things, but for somebody who is more of the, you know, touchy feely storyteller type speaker, where do they even begin to make sure they're finding the the right data that's going to match up with what they're saying? So they're not, I've seen people just sort of throw facts and figures in. It's like, eh, that's not a total match. How do they find the right data for them? Well, you know, that's a great question. And the, the right data begins with what is it that you are, when somebody comes to you and says, well, prove it. Okay. You can do anything. I, this, this is a, a bone to pick. I have with many of my, my motivational colleagues when they say, if you put your mind to it, you absolutely can do it. I'm like, you're setting people up for failure. Cause that's not true. A lot of people set their minds to it, but they get all kinds of things that get in the way. So there's no data around that, you know, there, other than we've seen it empirically that it doesn't happen. But the thing that is important for people who aren't real, you know, data rich in the programs is to start, you know, start looking at, at things like psychology today and other magazines, but I wouldn't necessarily stop there. I would look at the deeper studies because if you cite the more pop magazines and that kind of research, the analytical people are going to think that it's bubblegum. So you want to kind of go find the original research. And last thing about this is I think all of us could do this. I believe that we all need a board of editors, people who you can go to and say, look at this. What am I missing? You're not asking them to do it. You're asking them to tell you the the bald truth. And if you have somebody in that board of people who does research, ask them, you know, is this piece of research equal that? And how do I say that in plain person language? Mm. I like that. All right. So the second thing is, is conducting your own research. So this is something that I'll I'll be honest because I don't, I don't have a PhD, you know, I don't have that type of an academic background. It makes me nervous. And I'm in the process of doing some research, I think, with with a friend who likes to do research and our our topics are different, but there's an overlap. So she's helping structure the way the questions are written so that you're getting actual, you know, provable type research rather than sort of fluffy answers. What do people have to know if they're going to conduct their own research so they don't end up with just a bunch of fluff? It's a very valid question. If you're going to do a a survey of when when you're doing a survey, a one page survey of physicians for a medical group management association, right? Uh, And we use the data. 
what you have to be very careful of is how the words are worded. So you're not driving them to your conclusion or your bias. You have to make sure that you're covering all the biases. And you have to understand that if you're really going to get a, a true sample field of what could be extrapolated to the entire field, you better know what that number is. And it's, you know, for the entire world, it's about 1500 people. That's all it is, right? United States is like 200. So know what the real research is looking at. And when you're doing the research, it will go into what we talk about later on. When you're doing the research, just always think about what you're trying to get at in the broadest of terms so that you can collect lots and lots of data. You might collect data you never use, but at least you have it. And then you're going to collect data you didn't think you would use and your client thinks it's the greatest thing. <laughs> Be careful how you pedal it, though. When you pedal it as scientific, that's dangerous. It's going to have to go through a few more hoops and, and rigs. But there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, we did... an informal research with 500 people and this is what they had to say is it scientific that you know there's a margin of error of you know 50 (laughs) (laughs) percent well it it is it is true i found some of the most analytical people if you tell them hey i did this research and it's not necessarily you know scientific based no one's going to get a phd for the the research that we did but observationally it shows blah 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 i've seen a lot of those people be like Okay, we'll give you a chance at that. So I think the fact that you've you've tried and you've done it with some methodology yes. will get you past the your skeptics, right? That's bingo, and, and you're absolutely right. And they will buy it because it's empir- it's empirical re- research is what you would want to call it. It's what you see. So yeah, but don't don't not do it just because you don't understand how the research goes together. Just jump in, do it. You don't ever have to you know show it, but it will make you smarter about your client and your topic. So your second tip was about the difference between an amateur and a professional. And you said that is having a model. So what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, so when I was in school, there there was a professor named uh, Evian Gordon who was from uh, Australia. And he was a an MD, PhD, ED, in, and his PhD was in neurosciences. ED was in teaching and his MD was in some other thing. I mean, the guy was so smart. It was crazy. (laughs) And he made his career basically selling a few models. And when I heard him say that, I, I said, is that true? And he said, absolutely. When you want to take the research you've been doing in college forever and ever, or you want to take your experience as a speaker and really, you know, kind of capitalize on it, you want to begin to look at the landscape to talk about, okay, what's a model? And here's what has to be in the model. What has to be in the model is if it's going to follow kind of a scientific rigor is that it has to explain the past. It has to be present in the future and it has to predict the future. And it needs to be boiled down in an understandable and layperson friendly terms. It's not an acronym, though it could be. That's where your skeptics and cynics come in with the analytical brains. But a model is going to be something that just says, these are the four things that we use to do, you know, create prioritization in our organization. If we do these four things or go through a debate with these four things present, we always come with the priorities. And if the model works over and over again, and it was in the past, it's present in the present, and it predicts the future, boom, that's, that's kind of the scientific idea of a model. And if it works, you can... You know, bank an entire career on a model. Many of our <laughs> colleagues have. 
So again, taking this back to someone who, you know, came into speaking through a path of, you know, just wanting to serve and educate and doesn't have that type of a background. How do you go about actually creating a model instead of just taking a word like, you know, uh, and then figuring out like if the word is help, it's like, you know, happy, you know, effervescent, uh, you know, long lasting (laughs) and be rested and yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah. So instead Um, of just creating something for the sake of creating it, how do you build a model that, like you said, will predictably show the results that will come out the other side of the model. Have you ever stood in front of an audience and said something that even to you, it was like profound? You went, whoa. Right? <laughs> I, I surprised, and, I surprised uh, myself when I'm that profound. Yes, that's true. Exactly. You surprise yourself and you don't know where you got that from. You don't know if it's accurate, but you do know that it's accurate. And you know it's true. You couldn't cite anything from whence that came. And the people listening to you know that it's true, too, because they look at you and go, oh, yeah, because pretty much what we're doing in that moment is kind of putting out there this universal truth, especially if you have international experience. It's true for every single human in the world. And so there are certain things, universal truths that are true for every culture and humans in the world. Well, when you've done that and you've done that enough, you're basically channeling a pattern and that pattern it's oftentimes a model. And so you you come up with a model. You don't have to go and, and learn about research. What you do is you begin to see that your audience responds to this one pattern that you keep putting out there over and over and over again. Then sit down with people who do do models and say, is there a model in here? You know, is there something that we could label and, you know, create a little chart and what have you, something that actually you could begin to measure over time. So it's, listening to yourself and you're creating models all the time. How did you do Tom that, that, you know, you say things and boom, you say them again and then you say them again. Then you add things onto it. There's a pattern in there and it works for your audience. So are there people both from the standpoint of, of doing research and from the process of, of building models, are there people out there that you can hire to work with, to help you create sort of this, you know, scientific and provable and actionable, you know, both the research side and, and the model side so that you're coming up with something that's got some umph rather than just throwing some spaghetti at the wall. Some teeth. Yeah. Um, I think there's somebody that, that could be hired for everything. So, <laughs> well, that, in today's yeah. world, in today's world, that is totally, a, that is a fact. It's totally true. You know, if, if I were you and I was trying to do some research, I'd go to one of your local universities and find some grad students who have to get in some kind of internship, hand them the research idea, let them begin to poke holes in it. Um, you have to have a null and void, you know, have to have a hypothesis and a null one. So they'll go through all that stuff that nobody understands what it is, which is good, right? And they use it as a project, just be charming and convince them that they want to work with you on this. And it works great. So that's what I would do. I wouldn't necessarily hire. I go find this, the grad students. All right. So I want to, I want to pick that apart just a little bit because I've heard that advice before is, Oh, go to the university, find a grad student and you can come up with some legit research and, and, and build models, et cetera. How do you go about finding a grad student? Well, it's kind of like stalking. I bet I, you know, you, you just go onto the campus and say, where's the neuroscience department? Um, you know, you just, we all kind of have networks of people who probably know somebody at a local university. I happen to have some at University of Colorado and University of Denver. So I asked them, who is your chair on this or who is head of stats or whatever? And uh, you sit down and you just say, hey, 
I'm doing this. This is I get really interested in your topic and say, would love it if you have any students who are needing to get a statistic grade or a research grade to kind of bring them on. And could we put this out out there? <laughs> you just go do it. The worst thing they could do is, is to say, you flunk, get out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're talking about sort of this idea of being an experienced expert. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about research and, and citing data and having a model, but there's more to experience than, than academia and doing that research and creating the, the work product, if you will. So let's talk about what is needed mm. to be an expert when it comes to the experience to really justify that, hey, I'm an expert in this. Let's let's go back throughout life. How does somebody really become that experienced expert who's going to be able to have a sustainable speaking career? It's it is a great question there. You know, we all when we all started, if you started young, many of us tried to talk about, you know, being a leader. And we were talking to audiences who were, you know, several grades above us, a lot older, many years older. And we hadn't had any experience other than maybe on a team in high school or, or maybe you led something in a, in a, you know, a side job or what have you. But the, the depth is not there. The knowledge might be you go to college and you get some knowledge, but that's not enough. So when we begin to look at what makes up wisdom. How does it happen? How does that divining a universal universal truth, Tom, that we just talked about, how does that happen? And when we're exposed to these four things, we believe this is what makes up wisdom. When your brain is exposed to and everyone else is exposed to your, your number of years of knowledge. So how many years did you go to school? How much research have you done? Read a lot of books, you know, look at lots of documentaries and things. How much have you saturated yourself with that? And for how many years? The the length is important. How many years of actual experience touching, you know, actually being a leader, actually working on the front line of a customer service organization? How many years have you actually touched it? And then multiply that times your number of years on the planet. (laughs) And then we're going to add a modifier. And the modifier is actually kind of an exponentializer. And that is your experience in international venues. Because when you're looking at things that are true for everyone, you begin to pick that up when you you travel internationally. So the idea of being an expert, expert, an experienced expert, I kind of cringe. I don't like the word expert because it says I'm done and I did and I know everything and I don't even come close. I like to think of myself as a conduit and that I am the catalyst that they're going to choose. I see myself as a conversation starter and as a catalyst and that I will help them take it from there. So I'm not a consultant. I don't see myself as that, but I will always be available to, you know, apply them, you know, give them some research on this or that. And they all have needs for that. So they see me as their expert. That's th- their go-to person on this kind of thing. And it, it happens, though, you, you remember, people are going to fact check you. That's the thing. They are going to fact check you. And, and you want it to be correct. You want them fact checking. It makes you so smart. You just have to have your stuff together. All right. So a couple of things about those four areas. Obviously, the first one is the, the the knowledge, what you've studied, what you've learned, how you've saturated yourself, you know, both through formal education and through, you know, all the other ways nowadays that we can get knowledge. Right. There's so much so much knowledge out there. Hopefully you find knowledge, uh, uh, educational knowledge that's truth based and, and, and research based. But, you know, we have YouTube. We have courses that we can do. We can hire coaches. There's all kinds of ways now that we gather these bodies of knowledge. The second one you said was the time you've actually 
experienced it. There's nothing worse than someone who says, I'm a leadership speaker who's never led anybody or any team. So actually having done the experience, both of those two things, I think go kind of hand in hand, understandably. The next one you bring up makes me go, huh, especially as I get a little older. And that is, you said, multiply that by, you know, your number of years on the planet. So what you're saying is there's longevity is part of being able to have this successful speaking career and, and being seen as that expert. So longevity does matter, right? Longevity does matter. And as a matter of fact, we are retiring people way too early because you hit your wisdom years. If you have had at least 15 years of saturation in your one topic area, that's going to give you that heuristic capability where you see it instantly and know it uh, begins at about 50. And we're seeing it peak in, in people's 80s if they don't get some form of dementia. And the fact is, is that we are retiring people. So I've made uh, suggestions to do pilots to a couple of the large corporations to pair the incoming high potential people who are really smart, who think that if you're anywhere circling the drain, you're, you're, you know, you should not be in the workforce and pair them with somebody who's retiring and have the company basically offer to them a kind of a consultant contract that says, we want you to stay on for another two years. We're going to pair you with somebody and your wisdom and their basic hands-on with the new technology. Let's see what comes up. And when you pair that and, and that begins to happen, you get the younger folks having more access to wisdom more quickly. So the number of years is important, not only in your experience and your knowledge, but your, your years on the planet because your brain's holding a lot of data every single second that you live. So a few weeks back for episode 100 of Speakernomics, wow. we interviewed Lee Robert, the daughter of Cavett Robert, the founder of the National Speakers Association. And one of the things that we joked about is I am about the age now as when her father, who was a legendary speaker, he, he really helped launch the industry to another level with everything that he did, uh, not only just in, in founding the National Speakers Association, but in other ways that he supported it. I'm about the same age now as he was when he started his speaking career. Wow. He was like 55 or 55, 56 years old, somewhere around there. And I said, wow, that's when she said it, I laughed. I said, that's great news for all of us who are, you know, in, into the fifties, couple that with what you just said, that really our wisdom really, you know, hits overdrive between 50 and 80. So this is actually very inspiring because we live in a young person's world. Our Western society champions, all these people, social media champions, all these 19 year olds and, and things like that. And you're saying that to really be seen as that expert, you know, it can be beneficial to be of a little seasoned gray, as I call it. There's nothing you can do to speed up the years you live on the planet or your experience. You can pack a lot of experience, but space learning, space experience is more valuable than, you know, cramming it in. So when you get to, you know, the hallowed halls of 50 and above, what happens is that you begin to notice that your clients, they want you, not necessarily your topic. They want you because you can facilitate really cool discussions because of this saturated experience with the thing you've got over and over and over. And one day you got bored and thought you were going to change your topic, but you stuck with it. You went bored. Uh, uh, you go over and over. And one day you own it and you wear it and you live it. And your clients know that the confidence that comes with it and the ability to increase your value goes up huge. Well, I, I want to point out to everybody listening, if, if you're in that 50 to 80 plus range, you know, I think this is very inspiring because, like I said, we live in this, you know, everybody champions the youth in our in our culture. But also this is inspiring for those 20 and 30 somethings because it means that, you know, when you hit 40, 
it's not over. It's just really beginning. So you have a long trajectory for success in the business. If you're, if you're hitting, if you're hitting strides young, you don't even know what's ahead. The good stuff is still out there. That's right. And I, and when I talk to younger audiences, I tell them this is not just directed at, you know, as a favor to the, those over 50, if you're in your twenties and you think that this is going to be the domain that you would like to stick with for the rest of your year, your years pile on top of it, go out and find mentors Go with it because you will do yourself a favor. We talked about those 13 year olds who knew they were going to be a brain surgeon and they became one. Um, you know, not many of us out there did that. I know I didn't, but if you do know at a young age, the amount of time starts to accrue once you, you, you pick the domain and you can have iterations of it, but be really aware of what it is. Be intentional young. So the last thing, the fourth thing that you added on is sort of the bonus of those four things was your international experience. And that made me go, huh, I wonder why that's important. So let's talk about why you added that in as, as the bonus one. Yeah, so when you're looking at universal wisdom of uh, any any social scientists will look at a, a, a hypothesis, a, a formula, and they will ask, is this true of everyone in the world? So if you look at like trust and you look at it in the brain, you ask people, what is a trait of trust? They would a lot of people say authenticity and honesty. And I will sit back and say they are absolutely very valued traits, but they're not in the model. And here's why you can't get agreement on who's being honest always. You aren't necessarily the captain of authenticity. So what's to say that that person is not being authentic, right? And so there are things that can be argued, but if when you land on certain things, they are valuable to everyone in the world. The word that is valuable to everyone in the world, in every culture that causes people to be more successful than any other body of knowledge out there is reliability literally just doing what you said you were do and doing it consistently that you can see in every single culture in the world well i think we can end it on that everybody go out do all of these great things but go be reliable and say what you're going to do and and your clients will, will will trust you and they'll hire you and they will see you as that experienced expert and it'll give you that longevity in your career whether you're 20 30 40 50 60 70 or beyond 90 90. That's what I'm going for. Awesome. <laughs> hey, Scott Halford, thank you so much for being a guest here on Speakernomics. Thank you. Any final words for the audience? Have fun while you're doing this because it's a fun business if you don't get too wrapped up in the hard stuff. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you to you and thank you to everybody who joined in and listened. You know, we've crossed that 100 episode mark and it has been a great journey the last two years. And we want you to keep joining us. Continue to listen to Speakernomics every single week for more thoughts, ideas, and actionable information on how to make more money and be more successful as a professional speaker. And always, and I mean always, remember the motto of this podcast. Speak, get paid, repeat. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>